Greetings, cyberspace, and welcome to episode 31 of the Double Density Podcast with your host, Brian Angelo. So, Angelo, this week, you and I are once again flying solo after having Sam from Not Alone on last week. How does that feel? It's, it's uh, always fun to have a guest on, but we're uh, returning to our roots, although there's only really been two guests and a half if you count Lollipop the Cat. Uh, but I really like having guests on. It's uh, it, it makes for a nice little change, and I hope the listeners did enjoy having Sam from Not Alone um, come on to the show and talk about his experiences podcasting with technology and the paranormal and all that fun stuff. And we're hoping to have a few more guests in the nearish future. Yeah, I think we're looking at a schedule of, you know, the next couple of months, we got some special people coming up and uh, through our digital airwaves. So yeah, big thanks to Sam from Not Alone for being on, for sharing his tales, and also for discussing how he will never make the Magic the Gathering Pro Tour, which is something Angelo uh, didn't quite grasp uh, at the time, and I'm still wondering if you're still struggling with that. Uh, You guys talking about Magic, even though it's been around since I was a teenager, I, I feel like an old man. I really don't get it. it. It really is a lot like the whole Pokemon thing that totally passed me by. I, I just don't get Magic the Gathering. And I'm sure it's all fine. I, I like that whole fantasy stuff. I, I re, I'm currently reading a fantasy novel, but the Magic the Gathering stuff I do not get. And also, uh, something to note is that episode 30 was also our longest episode in terms of recording uh, and final uh, episode time. You know, it clocked in at almost two hours. I heard a couple of uh, joking rumbles from friends of mine about that. Uh, but you know what? Once in a while, you got to go long. I, I, thought, I think it was great because we had uh, a third person on. And when that happens, there's more talking. And we talked a lot. And we learned a lot. And I think it was great. I think it ended up at 104 minutes, which is pretty long. And I don't think this one will be as long. And I have a question for you. How was it editing such a long episode with a third uh, track to add to that? Well, the good thing is that we record a week out, right? So tonight we are the uh, 23rd of November, and this one is dropping next week. So the good thing is that we have that lead time, right? So it was nice to be able to sit down, um, you know, and, and kind of... Uh, parcel it out, you know, into a couple of nights of editing, uh, getting through it in sections. And it was, it was actually a lot of fun. And the nice thing too, is that the conversation was so fluid, um, just from the raw files that I didn't really have to touch much up, uh, in terms of crosstalk and in terms of, you know, um, weird noises and things like that. So it was actually, um, in terms of, uh, sort of the aesthetics of it, it was okay. But in terms of, you know, getting through the actual episode, it did take a little bit of time. My rule of thumb is for every minute usually takes me three to five, depending on if I have to fix anything, do I have to move anything, do I have to EQ anything? So, uh, you know, it was a little bit uh, challenging in terms of having that extra person on for so long, but it actually um, evened out because I made sure to give myself a lot of time to edit. And I don't think you actually cut out too much, if anything at all. The, the conversation was so much fun and so great that you pretty much kept almost the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, I think I may have cut like two minutes max because it was just uh, tangential stuff that didn't really go anywhere, I felt. Um, and usually I'm pretty liberal when it comes to editing, as you know. Like, I rarely cut anything um, out uh, for our regular episodes, our two manners, as I like to call them. <laughs> so uh, for that is actually, um, yeah, no, the, the conversation with Sam was so fluid and easy that it made sense to keep most of it come to think of it the only thing i really remember you cutting out uh an extended discussion on was when we talked about resident evil 2 for a while and this was like in in our early episodes and i i kind of forgot about it too once you had given me the episode you had told me i cut out the resident evil 2 stuff and totally forgot about it 
there's also that and there's also an instance uh i think in one of our episodes in the teens where i cut out um political talk that like lasted almost like five or six minutes that didn't make sense in the context of the episode there was just like this weird tangent that we went on that seemed to be working while we were talking about it and then in post i was like yeah this isn't something that we should be doing well considering i really know nothing about politics so yeah it's it was it's i'll stick to what i know Speaking of politics, um, also not speaking of <laughs> politics at all. Uh, so as I mentioned before, we are recording on the 23rd of November and yesterday was November 22nd, AKA JFK assassination day. So Angelo, I feel like you and I should have like five seconds of silence, right? So let's, let's go from here. You ready? Yeah. Okay. Let's do this. And we're done. Yeah. And that'll, anybody who's using overcast, that'll pretty much get cut out because, uh, it uh, skips the silences. That's fine. So let's do five seconds of something really quick. Then in that case, if you want to know more about the JFK assassination, check out the definitive book on it. Jim Mars's Crossfire, the uh, novel that actually inspired Oliver Stone's JFK for better and for worse. Uh, so I suggest uh, using that as a starting point if you want to learn more about uh, all of the possible um, assassination angles and, you know, maybe make up your own mind about who did what there. Yeah, it's pretty much solved, though, isn't it? It's, uh, it was the guy with the gun in the book depository. All right. This feels like an, a really, really bad episode of Clue. Clue? Yeah. Just, you know, when you pull the thing out, it was, you know, it's Colonel Mustard. Oh, yes. Okay. Arranging the, you know, the laboratory. Have you ever played children's Clue? Nobody dies. It's just they're stealing cakes and cookies. I have not, actually. Well, the next time you're over, we'll, we'll play a game of children's Clue. Great. Maybe we should do a video episode where all we do is play board games and yell at each other. You know what? But not even like real board games, just children's board games. So we'll play Clue for Kids, Candyland, um, Trouble, Sorry, all those fun games. One of the things I love doing actually is uh, a friend of mine has a deck of cards of children's scruples. Oh, wow. Yeah, I remember that game. Right, from and the edition that she has is from the late 80s, and so it's not politically correct at all. So one of the cards, for example, is uh, you're, you're an adult. Your daughter tells you she's gay. Do you try to talk her out of it? Really? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so my friends and I were using um, children's scruples as like a barometer for like our friends and like people we wanted to hang out with, just depending on how they'd answer things. So it was really fascinating to get a peek into the human psyche using a children's board, like a children's parlor game. It's almost like an inadvertent version of Cards Against Humanity. Yeah, sort of. And I think it's a lot funnier, though, because we were telling people they had to give justifications as to why they would choose yes or no or maybe. So Cards Against Humanity, though, is pretty funny because I don't think there's a few times I've played where it's uh, peak laughter in my life. Uh, I, I was crying. I couldn't breathe. It was really funny. I'm done with the everything means nothing and nothing means everything kind of aspect of the game. Yeah, I, I, I'm a fan of the creators of the game, though, because... Uh, surprise, surprise, I listened to a podcast by some of the people that work on Cards Against Humanity, and it's a pretty good one. So uh, I guess I have a soft spot for it. I don't actually own the game. Maybe that's why I've only played a handful of times, but every single time it's been fun. Yeah, I kind of, I don't care anymore. I'm just going to put that out there into the ether. If anyone approaches me to want to play Cards Against Humanity, I will straight up just say no, um, point blank. Speaking of games, did I mention that my kids and I finished Zelda last week? Which Zelda is this? Well, Zelda, the, the Breath of the Wild. Okay, there you go. You have to qualify this. It's true, yeah. Uh, we can't go back to how, uh, I think that was like episode five where uh, you revealed me as some sort of charlatan of Zelda games because I've only played uh, a few of them, even though I call myself a fan. But I've played quite a few of them, not just, just a bunch I haven't played, but still. Uh, we finished that game last week and uh, we purchased the DLC today. 
and we played a bit of that tonight before uh, recording the podcast. And uh, I have to ask you, what is your policy on DLC? Like in terms of like before buying DLC, do you check it out? Do you read reviews online to see if it's worth it or not? I don't buy that much DLC, but when I do, it's it's usually for something I really really enjoy. And in this case, it seemed worth it to get it for Zelda. There's this whole Master Trials thing where it opens up a whole bunch of new challenges to uh, increase the power of the Master Sword. And uh, here we go, where I was saying I'm not into like nerdy fantasy stuff, and I'm talking about the power of the Master Sword. So there we are. Sounds like you made some important life decisions, and so did I, actually. So uh, before recording tonight, I was out with my friend Bruno, who's also a loyal listener. So thank you, Bruno, for listening. And I was describing how I'm moving away from a, uh, a model of trolling where I target specific people. And now I've entered and defined a new style of trolling. So I'm calling this entity trolling and what entity trolling is is only attack establishments or you know broad things i'm not going specific so for example last saturday uh i half-heartedly will follow the montreal canadians hockey team and they're not having the best season at all and a lot of people were tweeting on saturday night about how they would love to be the general manager of the habs and i kind of put my hat in the ring too and i said hey guys if you pick me i'm going to change a lot of things and i was also trolling in terms of uh you know like not understanding hockey which i do but it was kind of funny to see the public reaction of people being like you don't know what you're talking about oh so people were actually reacting to your tweets you know you weren't just tweeting out into the ether no this time around i guess because i was using the proper hashtags and it was right after the game when everyone's like on their internet machines looking things up and like wanting to talk about things that i feel like i struck a nerve with some people who got really really mad at me it's interesting because one of my neighbors works for the montreal canadians on their uh, web team i wonder if he was one of the ones answering you but i don't think he handles the social media aspect of it to be honest with you, a lot of the people who work for organizations actually don't care about the organizations. And I mean that like in a, in sports, I guess, like they don't really have that attachment that fans do because it's kind of like an extension of work a lot of the time. Oh yeah, that makes sense. I guess uh, it's not like I follow the sports teams of the place I work at, which has sports teams because they're a school. So you're not a big fan of the basketball team there? I've never actually watched the game in the 16 years I've worked there. Now, just like to our American listeners, uh, like if somebody who works at a university doesn't follow the football team of that university, that's like a, a travesty and a, a, a heresy. But uh, it's not the same thing here in Canada where we really, it's not that big a part of the culture to follow. Like there's no Friday Night Lights really. Uh, or is there? Am I completely off base here, Brian? No, I think you're mostly right in terms of uh, collegiate sports in Canada. It's not it's not as big a deal. And uh, actually, we're recording this on Thanksgiving, so there's lots of sports going on, right? Uh, yes, I was actually, when we were out at supper, they had all the screens on to the Dallas Cowboys um, football game. So yeah, lots of sports going on in the States today. And eating of turkeys. <laughs> Is that your cat? <laughs> of course it's my cat. Our podcast would be incomplete without my cat putting in an appearance of being annoying. Double Density presents... The Three Titans. Welcome back to Double Density, and as always, Angelo uh, wants to talk about all things Apple. So, Angelo, what's on deck this week? So, yeah, I, I went to the Apple store this week. Uh, remember I mentioned uh, that I had a bit of a scratch on my phone? 
Uh, and I, I, I started looking at it and I wasn't really sure if it was a scratch or an actual crack in the screen. So I said, you know what, let me just pass by the Apple store. I'll go first thing in the morning. There's, there'll be nobody waiting. And I was right. I got the Genius Bar appointment really quick, um, within about five, 10 minutes. And the first person looking at my phone, she was looking at it and said, yeah, this doesn't look like a scratch at all. It looks like a crack. Uh, and, uh, and then I had pointed out there's there there's a piece of dust in my camera lens, which I think is a manufacturing thing, which I, that isn't not affecting the phone at all. So I said, oh, there's, well, there's that too. She's like, oh, you know what? I think we'll just give you a new phone. I'm like, um, well, that's going to be a hassle, but whatever. It's a new phone. It's fine. There's there's a crack in the screen. Obviously, I need something new. So then she's uh, putting it into the system, and she's having trouble with something. Another guy came by and looked at it. He's like, no, nah, this is a scratch. We can't exchange it for this. It's totally fine. Don't worry about it. I'm like, oh, great. Oh, well, so I guess now I have a scratch on my phone. But the fun part of all that was, as I mentioned this to my wife, and she accused me of trying to like swindle the Apple store into getting a new phone. And that, that was really not my intention. My intention was to find out if I had a scratch or a crack. And uh, it was just a scratch. So that we're all fine. The phone's working fine. It's annoying that there's a scratch that I see when it's on a white background. So it's not like you only see it when the phone is off. You see it when the screen's on. But only crazy people like me actually see it. So it's not a big deal. So your wife accused you of being a huckster. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Uh, yeah. I didn't think I was, but... Uh, it sounds like she thought I was really trying to get a new phone out of this. And my, that was not my intention because guess what? Setting up a new phone is a bit of a hassle. So uh, I'm happy to keep my little phone with a tiny scratch. That is not a big deal. But I did uh, decide to get Apple Care, uh, figuring, you know what? Uh, this is going to cover me for a couple of years. And these new iPhone 8s and 10s have very expensive backs to fix, especially the 10. If you have a 10, Apple Care is actually not a bad idea because if you drop it and you break the back, it's uh, we had talked about these fees in a previous episode. It's almost six hundred dollars in Canada. Oh my gosh, yeah, that's true. I remember the chart. It's it's the worst in the UK, but it's it's not that much better here, comparatively speaking. So I have a quick hot tip with uh, whenever you have like a Genius Bar appointment. I realized that there's an Apple Support app. You can get, and you can actually just schedule a Genius Bar appointment right through that if you're not close to an Apple store, can't just show up first thing in the morning. Because keep in mind, if you have to show up anything after like 11, you're going to be waiting for at least half an hour to meet with somebody. So if you just set up an appointment in the Apple support app, it's pretty easy. It works really well, and it even kind of knows which device you're using, so you can kind of set it up for a specific device. So it's pretty good. Perfect. And if you're just looking to chat with the Genius, that's a great way of doing that too, I guess. In terms of scheduling an appointment, like if you're just lonely, yeah. you want to head over to the Genius Bar, then like that's something you can do remotely. I think uh, when we talked to Sam about this last week, I don't think he, I think he mentioned that's not a, that's not a good idea. <laughs> no, because sooner or later they're going to know your face. Speaking of scheduling appointments and the internet, Angela, you had a bit of an issue with someone on Kijiji. Let's hear about this. It's kind of odd. Uh, we've been, I've been trying to sell a uh, Dance Dance Revolution mat for an Xbox 360 for like almost a year. It's been on there at 20 bucks and nobody's tried to buy it. And then uh, I recently like re-upped the ad, I guess what happens is it expires. So like it kind of just went back to the first page and uh, somebody sent me an email um, anonymously, right? Because through Kijiji, it's supposed to be an anonymous email. So I replied back and said, yeah, sure. You can come and pick it up. It's 20 bucks. Um, and uh, I, li I, I gave the name of the town I live in, so just they kind of have an idea. And then how I usually do it is they get back to me and I give them my, my address. Um, so I didn't hear back. 
And then uh, I get a text message from my wife while I'm sitting on the train saying, oh, the, the Kijiji person called. I gave them your cell phone number. They're going to send you a text message or they're going to call. Well, my phone number is not on Kijiji and my name shouldn't be appearing. So they're not supposed to know me by name. So I have no idea how this person got my name, looked me up. The only thing they had about me was my town. So they looked me up in uh, where I live. And obviously there aren't that many uh, Angelo Fiorentinos in like southeastern Quebec because it's mostly Francophone names around here. You're an endangered species. Yeah. And this person found my phone number and then got to my cell phone number. So when she called me, I said, how did you get my house number? And I I think I scared her. Uh, And she's like, oh, my my boyfriend gave me the number and all that. And then... I was totally fine. She was very nice, so it was okay. And then when she came to, to pick up the DDR mat, she told me how like super excited she was. Her dad's been trying to find this mat for ages, hasn't been able to find it, and her boyfriend looked it up on Kijiji and found it right away for her. So she, was, she walked away very happy, but it's just odd that this person was able to just track me down with what's supposed to be an anonymous email. So I don't know how that happened. You know what the weirdest and biggest mystery of this all to me is? What? Who is phone? Double density. Uh, so Brian, it's be- so Angelo. Yeah, it's it's getting to be winter time, and I I want to touch on something. Uh, hint, hint. Stupid dad joke. Uh, touch ID stops working well for me in the winter time because uh, my hands get dry and my fingerprints change. So winter time is a good time for me to commit crimes, um, but not a good time to use touch ID because I have to kind of like retrain it from time to time. Now it seems to be better. It was terrible on my iPhone 5S uh, in the winter where uh, it would uh, get rejected like three out of three out of like 10 times, which is really bad for Touch ID because it usually works well. Um, And uh, so I kind of tweeted about this and a friend of the show, Tyler Menard from the RGBA podcast said that he basically has to put his thumb for all five of his five of his entries. So he has like the same thumbprint five times so that I can kind of like get a good idea of what his thumb is. So uh, that's like an extreme uh, hot tip on how to like trick Touch ID into working properly in the winter if you're having issues with your uh, thumbs getting dry because of the dry winter air. So yeah. Here is a, here's a hot tip for everyone else out there. Just go ahead and uh, press your home button for the passcode. That's what I do in the winter. Yeah, but that defeats the whole purpose of the beauty of Touch ID. I only want to use Touch ID for convenience. If I have to stand there like an idiot waiting for my phone to unlock, I'd rather just hit the button and do it myself. Well, the good thing is, is that it's gotten better. So um, you have a, an, an SE, so like you're on the, the better Touch ID, I think. Um, but yeah, it, it is nice to, to, if you are having issues, just set it up again. It should work. Now, the problem is, is if you have like a Face ID in the winter and you're covered up, that won't work very well. But um, there's trade-offs for everything, I guess. I guess it's better than having to put in a passcode all the time, which is annoying. Moving from one form of future technology to another, let's talk about the future of TV. Yeah, this um, Mosaic series by uh, Steven Soderbergh is uh, is coming out. There's like an app. I think it's out already. And you kind of, it's like an, almost like a choose your own adventure type of thing where it's uh, interactive. And I kind of think it's a neat topic, uh, not topic, a neat um uh, what's the word I'm looking model? for, Brian? Oh, yeah, a good model of, of a TV show to, to try and get people to interact. But you're too young to remember this, but in the late 80s, early 90s, um, the major uh, cable company here in Quebec 
had something called VideoWay, and it was going to be this interactive TV. So you had on your remote, you had like, I think it was uh, was a choice of A, B, C, or D, and you could interact with these really cheesy mid-80s TV shows that were created for other interactive TV, um, I guess, ideas. And they they didn't work very well. It was kind of weird. And it also had these primitive video games on it. I remember playing Qbert on uh, VideoWay. I think I'll see if I can put up some pictures in the show notes of it. But um, it was sort of like an idea ahead of its time. It it didn't really work great because the bandwidth was so low and it was so slow. Um, but with things like Apple TV and iPads and iPhones and all other uh, stuff like on smart TVs, I think this is kind of like a, a thing where we're heading. I know Netflix has a few interactive shows in the works. Uh, my kids enjoyed uh, following along with the Puss in Boots interactive thing. I didn't try it, but... Because it was only working on the on the iPad, actually. It wasn't even working on the Apple TV yet. They only got it to work for iPads and for some smart TVs. But they kind of liked it. It's a very interesting way of uh, noting the future of TV. And I'm glad to hear that your kids are taking advantage of it. But sometimes uh, mysteries in the past involving television still remain unsolved. And it is the 30th anniversary of the Max Headroom hack. So the infamous Max Headroom hack uh, happening uh, in November of 1980. Seven and so the interesting thing is that um, it was this uh, pirate broadcast that had been breaking in uh, first on a local sports ca- uh, a local uh, newscast and then also later on uh, in an old episode of Doctor Who and someone uploaded a, a video they had of it um, somewhere on YouTube so you can check that out and uh, this has been going on for thirty years there was an FCC investigation in the states and people uh, don't even know who it is to this date right yeah so I'd heard about this for the first time just a few months ago and I brought it up to you and you said yeah I totally know about that and now here we are at the 30th anniversary so decided to kind of bring it into the show it's I I think this is sort of a mix of of tech and paranormal because it's not really I guess almost true crime it's it's an unsolved mysteries case that's for sure you can probably like cut in the unsolved mysteries music here and have Robert Stack introduce it because it is sort of like let me let me try that let me try that again ready Tonight on Unsolved Mysteries, I got that's all. That's all I got. That's all you got. All right. Well, that's all I had time to prep for. Uh, so WGN and WDD, uh, WTTT, which was the WTTW, which was the local PBS affiliate, which was airing uh, an episode of Doctor Who. And then, yeah, it was cut in and just the cameras shaking back and forth. Someone wearing a Max Headroom mask is kind of like dancing around. It's it's actually pretty chilling to watch. It's a it's a weird weird video. So he sort of makes me think. Even though he's supposed to be Max Headroom, he sort of makes me think of Jigsaw from the Saw movies. He also reminds me of. Do you remember the late eighties? There was the series of McDonald's commercials with the Moon. Oh, uh, don't don't bring up the Moon again. The Moon is <laughs> like not a, a good topic in this house. Dead and forgotten. But do you know who I'm talking about? There were several McDonald's commercials, and he was he was singing. I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay, I'll put something in the show notes for you to take a look at. But yeah, he, he kind of reminds me of the moon. So that's uh, all that to say. It's the 30th anniversary. Check out the YouTube link. Watch the video. Get a little creeped out. And then consider the fact that despite a, a large-scale investigation, this still hasn't been solved at all. Yeah, that's actually, that's the thing that, that uh, makes it interesting to me is that they they did have a few like ideas, though. I don't know if you had, had looked into those. There was a, a singer from a punk band that uh, actually later went on to create some YouTube series. 
and um but the band his bandmates said it was definitely not him because there was an idea to kind of like pirate a broadcast of their actual videos that they were creating as 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 a punk band and they decided that they they didn't want to do that because they might get recognized and some people thought that maybe this guy did it because if you watch his youtube series um his name is eric uh fournier uh they're kind of similar to what he did or whoever did this with the Max Hedrum thing. The problem is, unfortunately, he passed away in 2010, so no one's able to actually ask him if it was indeed him. But there's also like a second um, hypothesis. I don't know if you looked into this. There was this... Uh, there was this guy on Reddit a couple of years ago. Yeah. Who's that he, he knew who it was or it was him, depending on which answers you look at. Yeah, he was a, a programmer with like the unlikely name of Bowie Ch- J. Pogue. Yeah. Um, and uh, he said he there were these two brothers he knew, and he called them uh, J and K, which is kind of funny because it's the names of the men in black in uh, the movie Men in Black, which is, I don't know if you realize it, but it's a nod to John Keel. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so they had mentioned that they were going to do something big and that it was going to, he should be watching Channel 11 later that night. But I'm wondering, like, yeah, maybe it was them hijacking the signal, signal or maybe it was them like, we're going to be on the 11 o'clock news. So you got to better, you better check that out. So who knows what it actually was. But what's interesting about it is that it's still unsolved 30 years later. If the perpetrator is listening to the Double Density Podcast and would like to get in touch with us, you can hit us up either uh, through Twitter. You can DM us at double underscore density, facebook.com slash double density podcast. Same thing on Instagram. You can email us at double density podcast at gmail.com or our preferred mode of uh, conversation. Go over to double density not head and click the contact button for uh, more info. And speaking of the contact button, Angela, sometimes we get some very interesting spam, right? Yeah, he had told me to check this out. I had completely forgotten about it until yesterday, and then I went to read it, and uh, yeah, uh, what's that all about? I'm about to read this. Are you ready? Please. It's from Jack, and uh, there's a Gmail address, and the website that they've indicated is linux.ca. So the message is as follows. Evening household devotions had been probably the most important component of Lee and Larry's day. Daddy read a part of the story of Jesus coming at Christmas, which is the place he learned yearly during December's so they know the real reason for Christmas to celebrate the start of Jesus. At the finish of it, Lee asked, Daddy, did Jesus get a birthday party every year with presents and a clown too? That's it. Huh. So, um, to answer this, um, listener, I don't know what you're talking about. And keep listening. Please. Why not? Yeah, please. Yeah. (laughs) Something you wanted to touch upon and something that you and I uh, have both feelings about um you recently sent me an article about uh uh, release notes for apps well actually you said that to me but okay whatever floats your boat brian (laughs) i can't remember who sends what to who anymore it just it ends up in our show notes and we kind of go through it yeah so this was you um and you said uh you found uh release notes interesting and i agreed do you uh do you read release notes i actually do most of the time because i'm actually curious to know what's been fixed in my apps, but as we've established, I'm pretty different from most um, users of these things in terms of like the vast majority. Maybe people listening to this show are more like us where we'll actually read the release notes. But yeah, no, I, I actually read them pretty often and some are pretty useless, like all the ones by Google, which are always bug fixes and whatever, um, or the really bad ones from Dropbox that say, just go to this website. 
Thanks. Um, but there are some good ones. Um, my particular favorites are uh, the ones by uh, the developer of Carrot Weather, mainly because he refers to everyone as meatbags. <laughs> uh, for me, the release note um, sort of... Uh, culture, I guess would be the best word, goes way, way back, right? So uh, when I was a wayward teen, there were a lot of uh, different uh, parts of the internet that I'd get into that sometimes had release notes uh, for cracks in where slash Juarez, depending on who you talk to, they pronounce things differently. Um, and these were often uh, very aesthetically pleasing because they were ASCII-based. I remember so, those. Yeah, so they'd include, you know, in the .NFO files, they'd include, uh, let's say it was a, a an album that had yet to be released. They'd include the release date, the rip date, some really fun notes. And a lot of these were tied to different release groups, especially in music, right? So it was like usually through four letters, like .NFO, like, you know, I, I can't think of one right now, but there were a ton of those, oh, uh, uh, INS or whatever. And they would often uh, big up like fellow rip groups and then shame other groups like there are a lot of like internal uh clicks uh, uh with results uh w- with respect to that it'd be pretty funny if actually now uh the facebook release notes would be like shaming the twitter release notes saying look at twitter you suck we're much better than you but uh that'd be kind of interesting to see that happen the the one thing i don't like is some of these get overly jokey and it would be like if Anytime I made a dumb dad joke, you'd have like a, a rim shot or like a wah-wah effect uh, for every joke I made. You know what? I'd almost appreciate that. But yeah, I um, I very, very rarely read through a lot of the release notes now because I feel like it's like very mundane. A lot of the times you can kind of get the sense through the first couple of sentences of what's being updated or what's being fixed. So uh, I haven't come across any that are like particularly interesting to me, I guess, because I have all the boring apps. Yeah, you need to get yourself on some interesting apps. Um like I said, carrot weather. Um, the overcast ones are always helpful. Um, they're not uh, overly jokey, but they're usually very informative and let you know exactly what's happening. Um, but that's it. There's, they're useful. I'd encourage people to actually take a look and know what's being actually fixed in their apps. Because sometimes you get some new features and you wouldn't really notice them unless you looked at the release notes. That's a very good point, actually. I'd hazard a guess that if you went up to most people in the street and said, do you read the release notes? What do you think they would say? They would say, who are you? And no. Well, okay, you have to know them. So go up to somebody you know and say, do you read release notes? Um, I'd pretty much be certain that they would say, what's a release note? Very true, actually. That's a very good point. Are release notes a lost art for the majority of the people out there? What do you think? Yeah, nobody cares what they are. Uh, Moving on to the bigger questions, Angelo. Angelo, what's a computer? So there's a really great ad out by Apple right now uh, for the iPad. Um, Any iPad, I guess, but the person in the ad is using an iPad Pro. It's a little girl. Well, little girl, yeah, I guess, preteen. I don't know. Uh, Go watch the ad. It's great. And it kind of speaks how things are today. Uh, I've been saying for ages now that most people, an iPad does pretty much exactly what you would need a computer to do now. Um, And I've actually really been using my ipad a lot it's probably one of my favorite things i i wrote my my own show notes for tonight's show on my ipad with um the um, with safari running next to them so i can actually see what was going on and you can drag and drop in there it works really well and i was just sitting on my couch um and it's made me think that maybe i want the uh smart cover with the keyboard to actually be able to type on it like a laptop, although it's really expensive, so I'm probably not going to get one anytime soon. 
Um, but so I'm what s- you're saying, hold on before I forget, what you're saying is that Apple is effective at advertising. Shocker, right? Um, no. But the ad is great. I would highly encourage most people to go take a look at it. All people, everybody, go take a look at it. And what's fun is at the end, uh, somebody asks the little girl, what are you doing on your computer? And she says, what's a computer? Which is pretty much how my kids feel. They they look at the giant TV on my desktop and wonder what it really is. I guess they kind of know it's a computer, but they don't really use it. Mostly because they're not allowed. Because <laughs> dad won't let them. No, daddy says, you're not allowed. Dad's just a jerk. No, I play Zelda with them. We bought DLC tonight. <laughs> Coming back to your kind of bigger point, right? Like, what is a computer? That's a really good question. I think that as our uh, tech continues to develop and change in different ways, that is an ever important question to ask ourselves in terms of, you know, what is the differentiation between my laptop and my phone, my phone and my tablet, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that like there will be an eventual merging of these things anyways, right? Like a, a singularity of a uh, tech device. Well, something I've noticed is that the younger generation, oh God, I hate when I sound old, but uh, they're mostly just using their phones. And it is causing a problem in some cases where certain systems are run by older people that expect them to be using PCs or Macs or whatever desktop computer or laptop, because uh, I notice a lot of issues where I work where sometimes something doesn't happen uh, properly on the person's end and they're wondering why the system doesn't work and it's because it's not really made to be used on a mobile device it's made to be used on a regular old vanilla internet browser a uh, kind of clashing of uh, ages or a clashing of generations yeah generations and mentality of you know you have to get something done you really should be doing it on an actual quote-unquote computer yeah you sound like an old man no, well so no i disagree though Right. That's that's the thing is I, I've come around to this. I I think you should be able to do whatever you want to do on whatever device you find most convenient to you. Uh, so, for example, now I've I've pretty much moved everything over to like my iPad in terms of what I do the most. Uh, the one the, the main reason I use my my iMac is uh, if I let's say I have to do something for an extended period of time, if I have to work from home or this podcast, uh, I'll use my iMac because it's... Yeah, blame the podcast, that's it. Yeah, and, well, okay, and, and like, photo editing and stuff, I guess, is easier on the on the actual Mac, uh, music creation, but for, for general purpose, like, computing, like, surfing the web, reading articles, uh, email, texting, all that stuff, my iPad is pretty incredible. Well, I'm glad to hear that you've come around. You, you know, Angelo Fiorentino colon digital hippie is the way I'm going to start referring to you as, you know, like do the do what you want, do what you want to do best kind of approach to well, tech. I feel like our roles are reversed. You sound annoyed. You're like the annoyed millennial. <laughs> A little bit. I just, I like to, I like to joke with you. It's easy to get you going. Well, you're just being mean. <laughs> Speaking of mean, you and I have a new segment that we'd like to call, look at this f- idiot. You're going to bleep that, I hope. Well, of course. Okay. We have to keep it clean. So this week, uh, let's talk about, our, you know, our idiot of the week pretty much, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm leaving this mostly up to you because I know you have a lot to say. So I'm really, <laughs> I'm really curious to hear what you have to say. 
Sure. So this week's Idiot of the Week, of course, is, well, not of course, because I haven't revealed it, but Californian Mike Hughes, PKA, that stands for professionally known as to you common folk, Mad Mike Hughes is planning on shooting himself into low orbit with a custom steam-powered rocket he built himself at a cost of about $20,000 at USD. So the dude bought a motorhome off of Craigslist as a launch pad for a steam-powered rocket, which is actually not his first time in the hot seat. Hughes previously launched himself into the air with a rocket of his own design in 2014 and ended up in crutches uh, for two weeks because of it. So if you go to visit his website, his own website describes him as the most innovative man in the history of NASCAR. So I'm going to leave that just kind of hang in there. Other accolades on the website include the world's most famous limo driver and a Guinness World Record daredevil. So apparently Hughes set a record in 2002 for a limousine jump he performed. So if you visit the site at the bottom, there's it's littered with banners of businesses who I assume have helped him bankroll this current project. But the most interesting thing is a link that reads Research Flat Earth on the bottom left-hand side. And if you click on it, it's an hour-long YouTube video. You see, folks, Mike Hughes prescribes to the Flat Earth Theory He's going to launch himself 1,800 feet into the air to prove that the Earth isn't curved, but rather a flat plate with some ice surrounding it. So Mike Hughes is going to launch himself towards the Mojave Desert as a first step towards proving that the Earth is flat. He told uh, uh, one of these earth, flat Earth groups that he plans on exposing the vast spherical Earth theory that a lot of influential stakeholders supposedly have a say in. And then this is a direct quote from an interview. John Glenn and Neil Armstrong are Freemasons. Once you understand that, you understand the roots of the deception. This plan of mine will shut the door on this ball earth. So the Guardian who interviewed the 61-year-old quoted him as saying the following, I don't believe in science. I know about aerodynamics and fluid dynamics and how things move through the air. But that's not science, that's just a formula. So Hughes had previously tried raising money through a Kickstarter and last year was interviewed by Ars Technica where he complained that raising cash for his rocket endeavors was hard on a limo driver's salary. So in the same interview, he was quoted as saying, I'm not a crazy guy. I have a high AQ. I know the dangers, but this is a whole new world. I'm in uncharted territory with this thing. So good luck to Mike Hughes, the idiot of the week, his $20,000 rocket and being shot at 500 miles per hour through the desert in order to build a proof of concept for a flat earth empire. Uh, it's scary as hell, Hughes told the Associated Press in another interview, but none of us are getting out of this world alive. So, Angelo, what do you think of this guy? Uh, yeah, so he's he's going to try and expose, like, a big sphere or, or big yeah, round. Basically, yeah, basically, uh, yeah, round sphere, yeah. Yeah, he's... So I, I'm, I'm kind of speechless. So, any, so any, just, to, just to get things out of the way, like, you didn't donate to his Kickstarter, right? I did not. I, I wonder if okay. he's doing better than Rapper Bob. It's B-O-B, firstly, and no. <laughs> That's how old I am. Rapper Bob sounds better. Uh, so, and, like, w also there's, like, the NBA that has, like, this whole Flat Earth um, contingent. What, yeah, that, yeah. And uh, there's a great quote in that Guardian article of um, Shaquille O'Neal saying, I drive from Florida to, to California all the time, and it's flat to me. So um, thanks, thanks, Shaq. But apparently, he said he was joking. So I don't know because Shaq doesn't seem like an idiot to me. He seems like a, a smart man. So I'm not. Well, I thought I thought Bob was smart for a while, but clearly he's not. So are we pretty much um, saying that anybody who thinks the Earth is flat is not smart? Yes, I'm willing to put that blanket statement out there. Okay. 
So this is um, the opinion of both of Brian and I. So the official opinion of Double Density is that um, if you're a flat earther, you're not that bright. And that's it for the first edition of Look at This Idiot. Let's head on over to the paranormal, Angelo. Next week on Double Density. Bob the Printer reveals all. Double Density. Welcome back to Double Density. As always, we are switching gears from tech to the paranormal. So this week we're going to cover two things. One that might slightly touch on UFOs, which is kind of a crutch of ours. And the other one, which definitely does touch on UFOs, which is a crutch of ours. So um, the first thing is that you had linked me to a very interesting article about how we're now glimpsing uh, things outside of our own solar system. Well, the thing is, is that um, things outside of our solar system do pass through our solar system from time to time, but they go so fast that we don't actually see them or capture them uh, with the telescope to actually view them. But recently, we uh, received our uh, the first distant visitor we've ever observed, uh, based on what um, Lauren Grush of The Verge said. Um, and it's a really, really interesting story that there's this weird oblong object that's kind of gone through. It's an asteroid. Do you know how to pronounce that? Oumuamua? <laughs> I, I, I've stared at it so many times this week that I'm not even sure how to say it, so I'm not going to. Well, let's just say Oumuamua, uh, which sounds go. vaguely Hawaiian. It, so, well, it is Hawaiian. I know, I know. That's why I'm, like, I'm making it sound like it's vaguely Hawaiian, right? So uh, I knew it was Hawaiian. That, that much I, I did read the article i sent you brian um but yeah it's it seems really interesting sorry i sounded very defensive there did you hang up on me now i forgive you i guess okay uh <laughs> <laughs> so this thing passed through our 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 solar system but what's the interesting thing to 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 paranormal uh, observers like us um uh, it's like this oblong thing that's toppling end over end and there's some people that are seriously thinking it could be a spaceship there's a, a really great uh reddit post where um where they're like i'm an astronomer and i will like you i'll quote him i will never say this lightly but we are swear to god actually discussing with some serious right now what we what are the odds that this is actually a spaceship which I well, hot darn yeah, which I one hundred percent assure you has never happened before in my memory with seriousness. Uh, I'll put a link to that. It's in the space subreddit, which is actually pretty interesting. I like to go through it from time to time. Do you remember about two years ago where we there was that alien mega structure that everyone thought was a spaceship? That still comes up from time to time because they still have no idea what it is. There we go. So just floating in outer space, slowly making its way around to us, probably. Well, what what's happening there is that this star is dimming at like reliable intervals and it seems like it's something passing in front of the star that's what that uh quote-unquote space mega structure is uh, and it's an ongoing thing but i wonder but this one's really interesting uh because like one of the theories is that it's was a ship because of the way it's long and it was crusted over because it's so old because i don't know if you know this but the universe is pretty old. Did you also know that the universe is expanding? And infinite. True facts right here on double density. Uh, we're always just handing them out. 
let's go ahead and open up the phone lines and see if anyone has any opinions about this alien mega structure. No, I'm kidding. Let's not do that at all, actually. <laughs> um, so if you want to head over to the show notes, you'll see a bunch of articles that Angelo has uh, very neatly put together about this. And we'd love to hear your thoughts about this. Is it, it could it be a spaceship? You know, could it be space debris? Could it just be intergalactic trolling? Uh, if anyone has any opinions at all. Or, hey, if you're the actual um, piece of space debris out there listening to us through whatever means you have, then, like, let us know. We'd love to talk. That would be some really interesting uh, information if we got it directly from the source. Angela, let's let's get into what we wanted to talk about mainly tonight. Are you ready for this? I'm ready for this. In fact, I actually played some Cobra Triangle on the NES in order to get rid of uh, to get ready for this. So, Angela, let's talk triangles. Specifically, the triangle formed from the tips of Puerto Rico, Miami, Florida, and the island of Bermuda. Some call it the Hoodoo Sea. Others call it the graveyard of the Atlantic, but we know it as the Bermuda Triangle. Yeah, last week with Sam, uh, we kind of mentioned it, and it did remind me about how important it used to be when it came to the paranormal. Uh, it's it's sort of like some poor, forgotten uh, paranormal uh, reject. Like it, it used to be like one of the pillars of the paranormal pantheon, and now it's kind of like forgotten into nothingness nobody really talks about it too much um sort of like how quicksand was like a fear of children when i was a kid uh, that's not a fear anymore that is such a good point so bermuda triangle and quicksand nobody worries about them anymore so i'm wondering why because like can just give me a second here to explain this but when i was a kid um a friend of mine and i had uh, like as i told you right we used to take those kids uh, worlds of the unknown books out of the library all the time and we had this like grand unified theory of the paranormal and it actually started with the bermuda triangle so like it kind of went with aliens first visiting there that's where they arrived on earth and when they got there they retrieved the loch ness monster and they dropped nessie off off for experiments in loch ness uh, and when they did that they left behind some sort of magnetic field that caused all these problems so my conclusion is that like kids are kind of dumb um, and I was a weird kid, but it, it just goes to show how important it was. Like the, the, the Bermuda Triangle was like the crux of everything for me back then. And recently, I don't really care about it that much. So the interesting thing is like, I think that gets a very important to set a little bit of context, right? So uh, let's go back to the beginnings of the Bermuda Triangle as a phenomenon. So it came to prominence in the 1950s, mostly through uh, local uh, newspapers in Miami, and then uh, gained some prominence in the 60s, thanks to a lot of magazine articles, including uh, a uh, an article by George X. Sand in Fate Magazine in 1965. So I just want to take a sec and say, George X. Sand, probably a nom de plume, right? Like, not a real name, but like, what a great fake name. It is pretty good. The dude, I don't know if you know this, but I was kind of like, I've, I was interested in finding out more about him. So I did some Googling around and he also uh, wrote a whole book about scuba diving and how like a guy, like a survivor's guide to scuba diving. So that's kind of interesting. Um, but beyond that, you know, uh, it kind of came to prominence in the 50s, 60s and kind of hit like uh, sort of its zenith, I guess, in the 1970s. Right. So um, the most well-known case, I think, would be the case of Flight 19. Right. For sure. That's, uh, there, there are quite a few events that it's known for, but Flight 19 would be at the top. Do you remember the Unsolved Mysteries episode about, fly, uh, about Flight 19? Vaguely. I, I vaguely remember so many Unsolved Mysteries episodes, but the, 
I guess it didn't scare me too much because the ones I remember the most uh, are the ones that really messed with me, uh, which we've mentioned before. Uh, for example, the 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 haunted bunk bed. Yes, I was gonna say the aforementioned haunted bunk bed. Uh, that's pretty much the worst one for me, and that's the one I I vividly remember, like the end of seeing that shot of some random bed being crushed in a in a, a landfill. But yeah, I, I I do remember that one the most. But yeah, I I kind of remember Flight Nineteen. I it's it's an interesting story because there's a lot of people that disappeared with that and and they were they weren't just like a ragtag group of like uh, new pilots these were military uh experts flying and it was being led by an instructor i guess they weren't experts yet they were learning but they all had at least a few hundred hours of flight time under their belts and they just kind of totally got lost Right, so there are five down planes with a total of 14 men for the first um, section uh, of the uh, purported uh, Flight 19 incident. And then after that, the, another 13 were lost as another plane disappeared mid-search, right? So uh, the interesting thing about the Unsolved Mysteries episode is that it was half reenactment and then half salvaging mission. So they actually followed um, this crew who were going out because they thought they had found the plane and the wreckage and they were going underwater, right? So uh, it turned out that the wreckage they had found was not that of uh, the members of Flight 19 or the rescue part but over the last couple of decades this has kind of become sort of like a weird uh graveyard for mechanical objects be it boat or plane well because there were a lot there's a lot of things that have gone missing there the the thing is and what's pretty much come to light and why the bermuda triangle i guess is not as important anymore is that the ocean is huge things get lost all the time this is a small area and it's not even the most dangerous, and it never really was. It's just because it's so close to North America, and it was a lot of traveling going on there, the accidents that happened there got a lot of attention. And the thing with the Flight 19, it was, it was so tragic that the flight got lost, and then the people that went to look for them disappeared as well. Right, so that's the whole thing, is kind of like this weird chain reaction of people getting lost. Yeah, and, and the thing is, is that I, I was reading an article, which I'll, I'll include in the links, um, but th most of the stuff that happened, the famous things, have been kind of solved. Like, Flight 19, it was pretty much concluded that it was human error, and there was a compass malfunction. Now, you can say the compass malfunctioned because of those aliens that went to pick up the Loch Ness Monster there, but who knows why it, it malfunctioned. But it, it did happen. That caused a tragedy. Um, and... Like, Lieutenant Taylor, he completely was wrong. He thought he was actually flying over the Florida Keys. And then, so what happened is that with each course correction, he took his formation, like, further out to sea instead of getting closer to land. So what happened is they probably didn't even crash in the Bermuda Triangle. They probably just lost the remainder of their fuel and just crashed somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic. And even though he had all those flight hours clocked, he'd never really been based in Miami. So he wasn't familiar with the, the topography over there. So that, that was part of the issue. And then the, the Mariner plane that got lost as well, apparently it actually just exploded in the air, which I guess used to happen back then to planes. <laughs> Cause of death, death. You like saying that. 
I, I do because it's true in this case, but I do think that you believe that you brought up a very important point, right? So like some believe that the area is so strange because of uh, remaining technological advances made by the lost continent of Atlantis that was then destroyed, uh, polluting the topside and like messing with all of us above ground dwellers. Um, so that's kind of like one of the theories, right? Others believe that this is like an alien wormhole that like they come in and out of and that's why like all these things are messed up well that's my favorite i'm gonna get to that later but um you brought up a good thing with the atlantis thing didn't edgar casey say we'd find atlantis there yes he definitely said that i don't think he's right but that's just between you and me and whoever's listening well people point to the bimini road and say that's what he was talking about but like we've said about our friend nostradamus it's fun to go back and say yeah that's what they meant but it might the not retroactive be. positioning of uh, a lot of his quatrains onto real world events. Maybe you and I should do that in the new year. We should take a couple and just reposition them. How does that sound like a, like a 2018 project for you? Well, considering how crappy 2017 was in a lot for a lot of reasons, maybe it would work pretty well. So you said that you also had a couple of theories that you liked or slash enjoy that cl- clearly aren't true about the Bermuda Triangle. So let's hear a couple. Well, I, I think I'd never heard this term, but then Sam mentioned it last week, um, the electronic fog, which I think, correct me if I'm wrong, is a great name for a sequel to Chocolate Rain. Dude, Tezana should jump on this. That or it sounds like a really good synthwave band. Yeah, so electronic fog. I'll keep that in mind. But it's it was, I think it was coined by Bruce Gernon. He's the one that this happened to, and apparently he was flying through with a with a flight of a few other people on it. He was the the pilot, and he was surrounded by this fog, and then it kind of turned into like this weird, almost tunnel like thing. And then when it dissipated, he was basically thirty minutes ahead in his in his flight. So it's like he had traveled um, instantaneously what normally would have taken thirty minutes. So one of the explanations is he, he, this electronic fog is part of a whole worm th- wormhole sort of activity. And he flew this, through this wormhole and basically traveled that 30 minutes instantaneously. It's like missing time. Or gained time, I guess, in this case. <laughs> it's like the world's best GPS. Yeah, it was pretty awesome. But like that's the thing, though. The, the, it's almost, I feel like, a confirmation bias for the Bermuda Triangle. So like you remember the hits, or in this case, the accidents, but like forget all the people that successfully flew through the Bermuda Triangle. Like you're it's flying. Daily, yeah. So um, it, it may like, so people get mad at me when I bring this up, but it drives me crazy how some people think that uh, the full moon causes uh, people to act crazy. Like they'll say, oh, the, it was a crazy night yesterday at the emergency room because it was the full moon. But no, you're just remembering it because it was the full moon, but you probably had a crazy night three weeks ago when it wasn't full moon. It's just you remember the hits and forget the misses. Um, so that's what confirmation bias is doing to Bermuda Triangle stories. And uh, like things have become much more reliable. Airplanes don't just randomly explode anymore. So, <laughs> Well, as much as possible. Yeah. And it's leading to fewer reports of accidents. And none of the recent major tragedies have really been in the Bermuda Triangle. Like, for example, the Malaysia Airlines Flight 370, which has been the most... Um, as tragic as it was, one of the most interesting disappearances in modern time. And we still don't know what happened to that. There have been some clues and stuff, but um, it was nowhere near the Bermuda Triangle. 
Right. That's a really good point, actually. Um, and I think that, like taking a step back and sort of like where you're leading the discussion is apart from the phenomenon itself, what has brought the demise and interest of the phenomenon of the Bermuda Triangle? And I have a couple of theories. Uh, my first one is that, it, of course, it was one of these passing fads with few ardent supporters. Right. So a lot of people were quick in to cash in on the Bermuda Triangle uh, fever. So uh, the most well-known book of this is, of course, uh, Charles Berlitz's The Bermuda Triangle, which came out in 1974 and sold over 20 million copies. Right. So the book posits that the Destruction of Atlantis created the Bermuda Triangle. And funnily enough, when I was doing some research, um, I was looking at Goodreads, which is an aggregate site, and also people get to rate books. And a user from Goodreads in a review of the uh, Bermuda Triangle book said the following, I remember this being a thing when I was a kid in the 80s, maybe into the 90s, but I can't think of a single instance where this has come up since the major computer era of today. And I thought that was really interesting considering what we were talking about last week and this week. Yeah, uh, people have a lot more access to information and it's not like a, as mystical as it was anymore because, well, first of all, there's less tragedies happening at sea there, and um, people are able to see what's happening across the world. Uh, and the the article where I was talking about Flight 19 uh, was called The Bermuda Triangle, Whatever Became of the Myth. It's uh, by Charles, Charles, Giles Milton. It's a great British name. And it's from The Telegraph. I'm going to add it to the show notes as well because he brings up a lot of great points about how all these early tragedies that brought up the myth of the Bermuda Triangle were pretty easily explained. Right. So my second theory uh, that kind of ties into that is I think science killed it. And by that, I mean that scientific research has done it in, right? So a lot of, there were numerous television specials as well as other uh, purely scientific endeavors that have pointed out that people are grouping together a lot of separate incidences and using the Bermuda Triangle as an umbrella for all of these things. That makes a lot of sense. So there are theories floating around of, you know, like, for example, there's that uh, fake article about how there are very strong air bombs originating from hexagonally shaped clouds bringing ships and planes down, right? So it's um, fake. firstly, yeah, shouts out to Snopes for being the ever vigilant web guardian about this one. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of like pseudoscience that exists that sort of tries to explain the myth of why this particular part of the world is so bad. But really, when you really break it down, it's not any better or worse than other uh, several major areas in the world where there are connected islands. Yeah, because the ocean is like a horrible, horrible place. It's, it's not safe for human travel usually because a storm could come out of nowhere. And back then when these tragedies were happening the ships were a lot less robust and could easily be toppled. Whereas now, they're so huge and there's so many advancements that it's a lot of... Uh, it, takes, it would take a lot for one of these ships to sink as easily as what used to happen, as well as airplanes. So something interesting you bring up about the ocean being merciless is something that we're going to talk about in a later episode. Uh, basically, that's a USO, right? So an unidentified submerged object, much like the Shag Harbor incident we reported back on episode 23. So all of these uh, different ships that exist not above us, but far below us. Yeah, the underneath the ocean is almost as fascinating as what's in outer space because there's so much probably left to discover still. And uh, the USO thing, I actually never really heard about them too much until I kind of um, delved into the Bermuda Triangle research. And we, we came across a, a I don't want to say a bad website, but it's, it's very uh, early 2000s. Let's call it a throwback website. Yeah. Um, and we're definitely going to be looking into this because it is interesting that there are unknown submerged objects out there just like there's also those weird noises that people hear underwater and uh 
never mind the weird sky horns that some people hear, but uh, that that's a, another show for another day. I'm talking about whale farts. Well, yeah, okay, that's the underwater ones. Yes. Uh, yeah, The like, for example, the bloop. I, although I think that was solved. I don't know. Not today's show. We're going to end up finding out uh, in a future episode. Hint, hint. Who knows when? So my third theory in the final one is I feel like there are several like sexier paranormal phenomena that have appeared on the horizon since the popularity of the Bermuda Triangle some years back. So the things of like the rise of Area 51, um, flying saucer culture and more have sort of overshadowed this quote unquote kind of more mundane phenomenon. And with phenomena like Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster or any other cryptid, I think that the notion of the creature lives on even if it's largely been debunked. Right. So we talked about Lake Monsters a couple of episodes back and how comprehensively the uh lake in which the Loch Ness lives in has been thoroughly scanned over and over again, you know, especially recently, and they found nothing. And so as is the case with Nessie, like it doesn't exist, but people like to think it exists. So there are other supposedly haunted places are sort of accorded a certain amount of benefit of the doubt, like, oh, maybe they may be haunted, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I think the same thing goes with extraterrestrials too, in terms of benefit of the doubt. And I think, um, unfortunately, the Bermuda Triangle sort of like petered out as a phenomenon because there were no large incidents that had happened um, post world war ii that merited that much more investigation i mean there's the uss cyclops incident in 1915 but it's kind of uh pre-world war one or during world war one right so nothing new and flashy has happened in that area in a long time and there's nothing of note right there's no singular figure there were no groupings of a very similar phenomenon that happened it's just a lot of disappearances but once again once you start looking at the statistics is it really that crazy well and you bring up a good point there's nothing we can keep adding to it everything it's been dwindling whereas with things like bigfoot and uh ufos all that there's new things that are adding to it uh for example like in the 40s we used to see flying discs in the sky and then all of a sudden um alien abductions started taking uh, some precedent over that people starting seeing more lights in the sky the whole skinwalker ranch incident all these things phoenix lights Phoenix Lights, all these things keep adding to the fun and mystery of looking into these things, even though they may all be bunk, although I, I still don't know what, how to explain the Skinwalker Ranch. There's probably something there. Uh, I don't think it's aliens, but who knows. Um, but all these things keep compounding on themselves, whereas the Bruner Triangle, there's all these events that happened, but everything since has just been a regular tragedy that can happen anywhere in the world. And these things happen anywhere in the world. It's not like there's the Bermuda Triangle has some sort of like, they haven't really uh, cornered the market, to forgive the pun. But uh, yeah, it's, it's not anything that they, that they have over anywhere else. So that's the problem. You're right. It's not sexy anymore. The triangles are not sexy. I also think sort of on a more serious note, a lot of people, when tragedies like this occur and they lose a loved one, they try to attach some kind of meaning to it, right? And they don't want to believe that their loved one was the the problem with the demise, right? So for example, the Flight 19 stuff with the broken compass and the bad directioning, it's easier and sort of more, offers more closure to blame uh, this supposed phenomenon that it is to blame a loved one or to sort of wonder what happened to them a lot of the time too. So I feel like, uh, unfortunately, it gives like a false sense of closure to a lot of people who've lost people in the area too. Yeah, uh, like the 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 pilot, uh, Lieutenant Taylor, he was really experienced, and people found it hard to believe that he could make a mistake. But guess what? He's a human being. We make mistakes. He was um, not really trained 
around where they were flying there, and he easily got lost, especially if his compasses malfunctioned. The one thing I do find odd is that all the compasses on all the airplanes malfunctioned, which is really weird, but it can happen. It could be a manufacturing defect. That is absolutely true. And again, this is a long time ago. Airplanes are not built the same way anymore. I, I, don't, I think he wasn't even using, uh, he must have been using like an iPhone 3G or something back then. So, <laughs> and the compass on those things was really unreliable. Well, there you go, Angelo, uh, blaming uh, the technology, which I th- never think you'd do. No, maybe he was using an Android phone. Who knows? Wow, that was a uh, uh, very on brand for us right there. Yeah. Obviously, he was not using any sort of cell phones. Only time travelers had those back then, like the guy in that picture. We would love to hear your thoughts on the Bermuda Triangle. So if you want to go ahead, you can uh, throw it to us uh, over at Twitter. You want to DM or add us at double underscore density, facebook.com slash double density podcast. Same thing with Instagram or head over to double density.net and leave us a non-spammy comment, please. So Angelo, what are you listening to this week? Well, um, I listened to uh, the Not Alone episode that came out today, and I do want to give a shout out to all the new listeners we have. We have received a lot more listeners over the past few weeks, and we're happy to have you on board. I hope you're enjoying the show. I hope you plan to stick around. Make sure you subscribe, too, and we want to hear from you. Go to the websites and email addresses and all that stuff Brian mentioned. I sound like an old man. Go to those websites. Go to those email addresses. Uh, Whatever. Contact us. Go to doubledensity.net. And you can reach us from there. Um, and let us know what you think. Leave us a review in the iTunes store or Apple Podcasts, whatever the hell it's called. Or give us a star in Overcast. Makes us happy. Also, if you'd like to mock Angelo uh, due to the fact that Presence is his favorite Led Zeppelin record, then go ahead and do that too, please. I think someone needs to do it that's not me. Look, like the best Zeppelin songs on that album, and there are a few other good ones. I really like presence. Dude, Achilles last Achilles last stand is like 10 minutes. I could edit that down to six and no one would miss anything. Look, this is going to be another episode where we're going to be talking about Led Zeppelin and Satanism and all that stuff. Uh, it's in the works. So stick around about that. And we may have a special guest for that episode too. So uh, it won't be Robert Plant though, unfortunately. No. So as for me this week, I'm listening to James Brown's The Payback, which is a great uh, classic uh, funk slash soul album because that's like a 70s Led Zeppelin of course um, 70s uh, James Brown uh, same era as Led Zeppelin but completely different content also I'm listening to Wet From Birth from the Faint so some uh, dance rock for anyone out there who wants to listen to something a little bit catchy well in terms of music actually I've been listening to the Stranger Things soundtrack which is pretty good uh, I don't know if you listen to the uh, silly synth song uh, Brian put on the episode last week when Sam was talking about having music uh, in one of his shows. Uh, but that was something that was sort of inspired by uh, the music from Stranger Things. And I'm also really enjoying uh, Lake Street Dive. I don't know if anybody's heard of them, but they're fantastic. Look them up. There we go. Also, a quick note. I Speaking of Stranger Things, I actually saw John Carpenter live last week, which is great because he did. Um, so John Carpenter, apart from all of the different uh, movie soundtracks and scores that he's done, he's also put out two albums of original music, Lost Themes and Lost Themes 2. So he's touring on that, and it was a great pleasure to see him with a full rock band. Um, and then if you want to head over to your favorite streaming service or anywhere on the internet, really, he has re-recorded a lot of his classic themes with his touring band, and that sort of serves as a greatest hits too at the same time. So, you know, they live halloween the thing escape from new york all of those re-recorded brand new perfectly fun to listen to so i was just also checking that out geez this is also like it's like a music segment we've just started 
Yeah, because I was hoping you would list off an album instead of like rightfully so big upping the Not Alone podcast. Well, yeah, I, I, well, I moved to that. Okay, I said I, my, I started talking about Stranger Things, uh, and <laughs> and yesterday of all things, I was listening to Jewel. So I, I'm all over the place with my music, as you know. Uh, I've always mentioned that I have an eclectic taste in music. If you look at my uh, my library here in Apple Music, there's all kinds of stuff. Um, although in the past year, it, I always just end up listening to Lana Del Rey a lot, and a little bit of Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift, uh, it's mostly because my daughter really likes her, so we'll listen to there her in go. the car. But um, yeah, look, when we talk about music eventually again, um, I'll talk about my love for female singers and how much I, I how disproportionate my library is with a heavy bias on female singers. But I don't know. Sue me. I like the female voice. This has been it for episode 31 of the Double Density Podcast. Tune in next week as I teach Angelo how to shake it off. Angelo, have a great week. Thank you, Brian. Good night. Or goodbye, good day. Angelo. Bye. Goodbye. See you some more. Goodbye. Bye. I'm feeling the back of your head with my voice. Are you scared? I was uh, using Kijiji this week. We were selling uh, a little covered sled for a child. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That sounds super fake. (laughs) It sounds like you're trying to move heroin. (laughs) No, I assure you it's an actual uh, sled that we used for a few years. You just kind of drag it around uh, because it snows here, obviously. And uh, we were selling it for like 15 bucks. And uh, actually, that's not at all what it was... (laughs) You have to cut this whole thing because I totally screwed that up. It's not the sled we were selling. Welcome back to Double Density. As always, we are switching gears from... Oh, was Sorry. that a horse sneeze? <laughs> I coughed. I thought okay, you wouldn't hear again. it. Damn it. <laughs>